This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on what's next for a warring Tory party following Johnson's marginal escape after the vote of no confidence. Hadley Freeman chats to English rock icon Pete Doherty about his new life in Normandy, his hell-raising past and the release of his upcoming memoir. And finally, writer Joanna Moorhead teaches us the techniques to help us make important decisions better when under pressure. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just a heads up, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, after Boris Johnson narrowly escaped a vote of no confidence this week, Columnist Marina Hyde asked whether the Tory party can truly move on after this or if it's going to continue devouring itself while the nation watches in horror. Read by Esther Coles. Ironically, the Conservative Party seems to have been unable to engineer a leaving do for Boris Johnson. Last night's unsuccessful leaderplasty leaves the government hideously disfigured but staggering on, and the Prime Minister the subject of headlines like Let me get on with the job, which, considering the circumstances that brought us here, is a little like Fred West pleading to be allowed to get on with finishing someone's loft extension. The not getting on with the job has been a significant part of the problem. Please don't think that's today's only serial killer reference. We shall be dealing later in the column with the one made in the Prime Minister's defence by Tory MP Adam Holloway during a particularly eye-catching Newsnight appearance. For now, a recap. Scores on the doors were 148 Conservative MPs voting no confidence, with 211 opting to clean up after Big Dog yet again. For them, this is not rock bottom. Johnson's supporters have dived down to the bottom of their equivalent of train spotting's worst toilet in Scotland and fished out the suppository. Or to put it in a different way that still underscores a dependency, 211 of them chose last night to order another gram of Boris Johnson, rather than begin the painful yet ultimately unavoidable process of coming down from what can surely no longer be described as a high. This morning, Johnson apparently told his cabinet, this is a government that delivers on what people in this country care about most which feels bold, considering that a poll yesterday indicated 60% of the country wanted him to sod off to a long, long Sartrean afterlife on the Hannibal lecture circuit. Johnson's mission-aborting government is arguably the UK's worst delivery service, making even Yodel and Hermes look as if they go the extra mile to serve. We tried to deliver even one half-arsed policy, but you were out. 
Today's other official angle is that last night's horror show allows the government to draw a line under leadership speculation and to stop the Tory infighting. A reminder, things we've done fairly recently to stop Tory infighting include having a referendum, having two general elections and having no confidence votes in both the past two leaders. How's it working out for us, would you say? A significant number of the exhausted British public will feel they've worked harder on this relationship than their own marriages. Still, Boris can change. He can make it work again with the voters. Settle an argument. Who's more likely to rekindle their relationship? Boris Johnson and the electorate or Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? You'd think the latter would have a better shot at renewing their vows. Hard to look at last night's numbers and not conclude the Prime Minister has been ambushed by consequences. The thing most likely to be rekindled is the dry brushwood beneath his stake. But look, Johnson's big new ideas are reportedly in the post. So do clamber back onto the old tenterhooks. Another new chief of staff? Return to the gold standard? Revival of shillings and farthings? His biggest big idea continues to be the threat of triggering Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Or, if you prefer, to get Brexit undone. It remains remarkable that some years into the experiment, we are no closer to discovering what politically Boris Johnson actually likes, other than being liked. A lifetime of hollowing himself out with narcissism and personal ambition seems to have meant that when he finally became Prime Minister, he had no idea what to do with the position and even less interest in finding out. The course of a redemption arc for that type of character feels particularly unclear. For us, the audience, the scene feels familiar. Here we go again, back to Tory Elsinore. It's a place we've come to know only too well, where frequent five-act bloodlettings have yielded a steady parade of inadequate fortinbrasses. Who's next? Hard to say at this point. Yesterday, the Cabinet Rat King remained intact, with no Secretary of State finding the will or skill to detach itself from the fused mass of tails. Nothing is as hard fought as the competition to be the maddest liability defending Johnson. There was Jacob Rees-Mogg, obviously, who had his rose-tinted monocle firmly wedged in his eye socket when he suggested a majority of one would be enough for Johnson to declare his authority undimmed. There was Nadine Doris, the missing link between the vegetable and mineral kingdoms, whose botched attack on Jeremy Hunt contrived to describe her own party's earlier pandemic preparation as wanting and inadequate. There were the unnamed sources explaining the PM's weakness is he's too nice to people. There were the very unnamed sources who kept saying that Johnson was toying with calling a general election. Truly, the David Koresh move. And last but not least, there was the Gresham MP, Adam Holloway who was beamed onto Newsnight to declare of his boss, this programme that I am on now was showing pictures of him looking like Hannibal Lecter. Challenged by presenter Mark Urban, Holloway produced an iPad with a screenshot. I can show you right here, he claimed. You've got razor blades. Does that guy look like somebody who's been given a birthday cake or somebody who's just been locked up for something at the Old Bailey? Oh dear. Like the rest of the rational world, I couldn't see the razor blades to which Mr Holloway was referring, but then perhaps we will simply have to accept that comic beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The same programme was once accused of photoshopping Jeremy Corbyn's hat to make it look more Russian. So perhaps the sanest conclusion is that there is something very rotten in the state of Newsnight's graphics department. In any case, even an outraged comparison of Johnson with Lecter increasingly feels very unfair to the unconventional forensic psychiatrist. Lecter, of course, was rather more skilled at drawing things out than the Prime Minister, who, as of last night, has been bumped into the role played by the late Ray Liotta in Hannibal. 
You may recall the scene in which this useless and corrupt government official has been so skillfully drugged that Lecter is able to feed him mouthfuls of his own brain while he retains a form of consciousness. This will be Boris Johnson's summer. We are all Karee Starling now, tied to the chair at the other end of the table and forced to watch. That was, with Hannibal Johnson safe in his job for now, the Tory party can carry on devouring itself by Marina Hyde. Read by Esther Coles. Next. It's not hyperbole to suggest that Libertine's frontman, Pete Doherty, was an era-defining musician. Journalist Hadley Freeman actually lived next door to the rock star on Brick Lane during the height of his fame and arguably infamy. Recently, though, she travelled to Normandy, where Doherty lives with his wife and bandmate Cartier Davidis, to talk about crack cocaine, camembert, life in France and his upcoming memoir, A Likely Lad. Read by Jason Doan. High up on a Normandy clifftop, in a house overlooking the sea, the man I once considered to be the most beautiful musician in the world, Pete Doherty, is asleep on a sofa in a pair of black underpants. Back in the 2000s, I frequently used to see him around East London, trailed by acolytes and hangers-on, but I never once saw him asleep, or even at rest. To his fans, it looked as if he was lost in his own poetic world. His critics sneered that he was lost in crack and heroin. But here he is now, having a mid-morning snooze, in the home he shares with his wife, Cartier de Vidas, his Siberian husky Zeus at his feet. No one expects an interview with Doherty to start on time, but my train back to Paris leaves in three hours, so I give his shoulder a gentle tap. He snuffles awake. Oh, hey, OK, uh, just give me a minute. I'll get some clothes on, he says in his fey and gravelly voice, and disappears. Laura, the Guardian's photographer, and I wait nervously. Will he give us the slip? Or fall back to sleep? Instead, he confounds our expectations and reappears within 30 seconds, dressed in a black T-shirt, shorts and slides, cap on his head, looking, if not fresh, then at least awake. I tell him the plan. I'll interview him here, then Laura will take his photo in the garden, and then I'll catch my train. No, that's not going to work, he says, already on the move. I want to drive you somewhere. Let's go. He opens his car door and Zeus jumps in. As it happens, the last thing my editor said to me before I left for Normandy was, whatever you do, don't let him drive you anywhere. I get in the car. Um, what time will you be back? Laura calls, still standing in front of the house. But Doherty doesn't answer. And off we go. So many men and women of my generation were in love with Doherty. Never before had a musician seemed so charismatic, so romantic, and yet so accessible. We stalked the pubs he hung out at, joined message boards to know when the next gig would be, copied his style. He and his on-again, off-again best friend Carl Barratt founded their band, The Libertines, on their vision of Arcadia, which was all about communality, a world built on art and creativity. That dream fell apart when Doherty decided it should mean hanging out with packs of fellow drug addicts, much to the chagrin of his more business-minded Barratt which led to Doherty being chucked out of the band several times. But initially, at least, it meant treating the fans as part of the band, pulling us on stage and inviting us to after-parties. And the music. No other band better captured what it felt like to feel young and stupid and glorious in Britain at the beginning of this century. A zillion copycat bands mushroomed in their wake but none came close to the Libertines. They only released two albums at their peak, 
2002's Up the Bracket and 2004's The Libertines. Anthems for Doomed Youth followed in 2015, but they were the iconic band of the era. Now, recalling the intensity of my feelings for Doherty makes me cringe, like remembering a misguided early relationship. Recent years have been especially discombobulating for Doherty fans. He was always a magnet for the tabloids, which used to follow him around hoping to catch him shooting up or overdosing. Now, aged 43, he gets papped trundling about Normandy with grey stubble and a paunch. Pete swapped the heroin for cheese, sneer the headlines. Before I arrived in Normandy, I felt as nervous as if I were going to a high school reunion. Would he be a reminder of my youthful foolishness, or a reflection of my middle-aged dullness? And which would be worse? Should we get a coffee? Oh, no, that road's closed, Doherty says, as we drive through a local village. The car is making a worrying beeping sound. Does he want to see what that is? Yeah, it's weird, that, he says. After about 15 minutes, we realise it's Zeus standing on one of the back door latches, half opening the door. Hanging out with Doherty in 2022 is, in some ways, not massively different from hanging out with Doherty in 2002. I show him a photo a friend took of the two of us in 2005, back when he was living in a horrible little hotel on Brick Lane in East London, and I was living in the flat next door. So, that's when we were hanging out. I thought I remembered you, he says with a smile, which is a sweet thing to say, but extremely unlikely given the amount of narcotics he was on at the time. Does he remember much from that period? I try not to. That's why it was a bit weird with the book. I just couldn't be doing with it. Right, the book. I've come to Normandy to talk to Doherty about his memoir, A Likely Lad, which he co-wrote with Simon Spence. It's full of anecdotes that evoke the scuzzy chaos of London's indie music scene in the early 2000s. Typical example from the book. When the Libertines broke into a pub in Clerkenwell to put on an early gig... The only person to turn up was Razorlight singer Johnny Burrell. He turned up in a gas mask, did a folk set with these two black gospel singers. He was quite good, actually. As the most infamous member of the Libertines, and then his second band, Baby Shambles, Doherty wasn't just at the heart of that era. He defined it. In ways both good, his poetry, his idealism, his stylishness, and bad, the drugs the convictions, the wasted talent. Who better to capture the excitement, but also the bleakness of that period, than him? But nothing is simple with Doherty. Not only did he not write his memoir, he talked to Spence, who then had the unenviable job of putting all the tales in chronological order and fact-checking them, but he hasn't even read it. It's too weird reading it because it's in the first person, he says. Was that not what he expected? No. The initial agreement was I would talk to him on the phone and it would be in the third person. But when the book arrived, it was all I, I, I. It's completely shocking. So he's a bit upset about it. Well, yeah. I mean, you can imagine. My agent's words to me were, just think of the money. But we'd already spent the money. Worse, he says. They've taken all the good bits out because everybody's lawyer had to read it. Carl had a good look at it. Kate Moss's lawyers wanted to see it. I kept saying, you've got to keep that in. It's funny. They kept saying, no, no, no. Plus, my wife was a little bit concerned. But I said to her, if you don't read it and I don't read it, we can just pretend it doesn't exist. But that's not how she does things. Later, I asked Doherty's literary agent about how the book was written. And he says... A Likely Lad is a ghosted autobiography based on many hours of conversation between Peter and the ghostwriter. Peter may have had reservations about this approach initially, but every word in the book is his. Davidas plays the keyboard in his current band, Pete Doherty and the Puta Madres, and they got married last October. 
What did she take out of the book? Loads of stuff about other girls, obviously, he says. And it's true that several of Doherty's girlfriends and the odd fiancé are notably absent. Similarly, singer Lisa Moorish, the mother of his 18-year-old son Astil, and model Lindy Hingston, mother of his 10-year-old daughter Ashling, barely make an appearance. But he and Astil, an aspiring filmmaker, have a good relationship, he says. He hasn't seen Ashling since his relationship with Hingston broke down. One ex who very much does appear in the book is Moss. The pair were together for more than two years and the combination of Britain's most notorious musician and the world's most rock and roll model made them the ultimate celebrity couple. Things briefly imploded for them in 2005 when photos of Moss appearing to take cocaine in a studio where Doherty was recording with Baby Shambles ran on the front of the mirror. There were rumours that Doherty himself had sold those photos, which he has always firmly denied. And Lord knows he had plenty of hangers-on who would have sold photos of their dead grandmother for a tenner. But surely he knew that Moss, a famously private person, would hate him writing about their relationship. I don't think there's anything about Kate in this that hasn't been written before, he says. So you left out all the stories about Kate Moss going to crack dens, I say, as a joke. But he gets all jumpy. Kate Moss didn't go to crack dens. She's never had an interest in all of that, and if I'm honest, that's why we broke up. Does he regret choosing crack over Kate Moss? Do I regret breaking up? Yes. No, of course not. What kind of question is that? He scoffs. Despite the lawyers, the book still packs in plenty of good value celebrity anecdotes from a member of the Strokes nicking Doherty's cocaine, to the time he and Moss went on holiday with, of all people, Sarah Ferguson, which ended up with him being deported. And the next thing I woke up at Heathrow in a pair of Thai policeman's shorts, he writes. It is also very good at capturing the absolute chaos of Doherty's life. On one page alone, his house gets flooded. He goes to court for driving offences, Thirteen wraps of heroin fall out of his pocket while in the courtroom, and a friend seriously injures a man while driving Doherty's car, which neither of them were insured to drive. No one ever made being a dropout sound more exhausting than Doherty. Spence writes in the book's introduction that he had been asking Doherty's manager for years about the possibility of collaborating on a book, but was told not to hold his breath. Unexpectedly, in late 2020, Doherty agreed to do it. Money was undoubtedly a factor. Doherty tells me he only agreed to do the Libertines 2019 tour to pay a tax bill. But there was something else. In late 2019, he finally kicked his long-standing heroin and crack habit, and so felt sufficiently stable to embark on the project. Where are we today, at 2021? July, he asks. May 2022. OK, so it's been three years now since the end of, or at least a long pause in, this mission of mine to constantly get obliterated on crack, heroin and ketamine, which is a mission I took pretty seriously for 20 years, and every aspect of my life was affected by that mission. Even this, being able to jump in the car to get to a place where Zeus can run around, that feels new. And it's good you're here to see it, he says. You are listening to Pete Doherty on crack, camembert and life in France. It's easier to be clean here, even for a scoundrel like me, by Hadley Freeman. We're going to take a short break now. However, we'll be back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hello, this is Max Rushton from the Guardian Football Weekly. I hope you're enjoying your other Guardian pod. And look, you've read 58 articles now and you're still not contributing. So why not come to our live tour? Uh, we're in Leeds on the 13th of June, Birmingham on the 15th, Manchester on the 19th, Glasgow on the 13th of July. The panellists are brilliant. Uh, me and Barry are getting away with it, but they're really fun occasions and... 
we'd love you to come. Few tickets remaining for some, lots of tickets remaining for others, no tickets remaining for others. Don't know why, that's just we're popular in Dublin and not in Birmingham. But please come along, myticket.co.uk. Uh, you can get your tickets at myticket.co.uk. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, let's jump right back into Hadley Freeman's interview with Pete Doherty. Read by Jason Doan. The story of Doherty's return to sobriety will probably not be adopted as a model by Narcotics Anonymous, given that it began with him being arrested in Paris twice in 48 hours. First for buying crack, then for beating up a motorcyclist who, Doherty writes, was driving his scooter towards one of my dogs. Then, at the Paris police station, I pulled my pants down and pissed all over the counter, was shouting stuff about the war. When they came to interview me, I was just in my QPR shirt and my pants and a piss-soaked blanket, he says in the book. He was put on probation on the condition he go on Bouvidal, which is an injection to block the effect of heroin. Also, as part of his probation, he needed a permanent address. He'd hoped to go back to the Albion Rooms, the Libertine's somewhat improbable hotel in Margate, Kent, where he'd been staying before the tour but he had been banned. I kept bringing various characters there, and it was no good for the vision Carl has for it as a business, he says. So instead he went to Davidus's family home in Normandy, which is where they are still living. Then the pandemic hit. It's not a big drugs area here. Then, of course, everything stopped, so all the circumstances combined to make it easier to be clean even for a conniving scoundrel like myself. It just wasn't worth the aggravation, he says. But ten years ago, not even probation, a blocker and a pandemic would have come between him and drugs. Has he lost his appetite for self-annihilation? Maybe. I don't know. Before the tour, in 2019, when I was living in the hotel in Margate... There was a fair bit of annihilation and chaos, like what you saw back on Brick Lane. I wasn't dead, somehow, and that was more or less enough for me. But it's true. Ten years ago, I absolutely wouldn't have moved here. His life in France is pretty quiet. I just try to keep my feet up and walk the dogs, read, find a good gaff, talk to people, go to church sometimes. Really? Yeah. Cartier doesn't come, but it's nice. In his book, he writes that the first time the Libertines played together, my heart was completely in it. In the same way I was a true believer in Jesus and how the love of God could save your soul when I was 14. Now I was sold on rock and roll. Does he ever have moments when he thinks how different his life is now from how it once was? Yeah. Definitely moments when I think, how strange, but I suppose this is what I've always been searching for. What? Contentment? I think so. I don't think I could have this kind of life in England. I get too easily distracted. Here, I get left alone, he says. Once, he romanticised England. More gin in teacups, leaves on the lawn, 
violence in dull cues, and a pale thin girl behind the checkout, he sang in Albion by Baby Shambles. Now, he says with a proud tug of his hat, I'm a good Frenchman. He's not getting French citizenship, however. Instead, he hopes to get an Irish passport, thereby ticking the EU box. His French, he says, is pas mal, mais pas parfait. And he's become a big fan of Petonque. He and Davidus are looking to buy a house in the area. We park the car on a rocky beach. I ask if I should bring Zeus's lead. Nah, he'll be all right, says Doherty, and Zeus immediately takes off for the shoreline. As we walk, we talk about his 2012 payout from the News of the World, after the tabloid admitted hacking his phone. In his book, he says his mum, Jacqueline, and older sister, Amy Jo, were also targeted. Sometimes I think it wasn't so bad. I used to get away with quite a lot as well. He writes about the hacking. Is that really how he felt about being hacked? He looks at me as if I'm deranged. No, of course not. Where did you read that? In his memoir. God, no. What a ridiculous thing to say. It was incredibly distressing, he says. How did he feel about being such a mainstay of the tabloids for so long? Well, if they'd have been celebrating the music and I looked half-decent... It would have been the dream. He smiles a little sadly. But they just wanted to write about drugs and moss. Yeah, it was confusing. I tell him some people said he sold stories about himself to make money to buy drugs. There were times when the tabloids would want to talk and I'd sometimes take their money on the condition that they'd write about the music. But they'd just write about moss. Yeah, that's all they wanted to write about. How does he feel now when the tabloids make fun of how much he's changed physically and publish photos of him, say, eating a gigantic fry-up? I hear whispers about it, but I don't see it. I was always quite good at tuning things out. And it becomes like a badge of honour, doesn't it? Like you think, all right, some thick bastard in a Canary Wharf office wants to write about me, and I can take it. Yet in his mother's heartfelt and very sad 2006 memoir, Pete Doherty, My Prodigal Son, she writes that he is very fragile. Yeah, that's true too. I do still feel fragile. Is that why he sought annihilation in drugs? If it was, that didn't make any sense because heroin puts you in pretty vulnerable situations, he says. And after reading his memoir, no one could doubt it. It is, frankly, astonishing that he is still alive, especially as so many in his circle are not, including Amy Winehouse and Peaches Geldof, who both make appearances in the book. Amy was always moving so fast, and I think she didn't know what to do with herself when left to her own devices, he says. Other less well-known people around him died, including Mark Blanco, an actor who fell from a balcony after trying to talk to Doherty at a party, and Robin Whitehead, a member of the Goldsmith family, who died of a heroin overdose after spending the night with Peter Wolfe, a member of Doherty's close circle. Doherty was absolved of any connection to either death, and he writes vehemently about his innocence in the book. But he doesn't seem to draw the obvious conclusion here, which is that if you surround yourself with sketchy characters people will get hurt. He and Wolfe, he says, will always be friends. Doherty wants a coffee, so he sets off on a harem-scarem chase of Zeus, which takes about ten minutes, and we head into a beachside cafe. He orders a black coffee and a glass of Calvados, which he drinks with pleasure. So, he's given up the heroin and crack, but still drinks alcohol. Yeah, but I think this has to be the next to go. I can't perform without a drink, and that seems like something to work on, he says. He recently DJed in Milan and had, he says, some rum and coke beforehand. It's good that drinking doesn't then lead you into taking more drugs, I say. No, I mean rum and coke, he says, and I can't help but laugh. But I then went to bed after my set finished. I didn't feel the need to pursue it. So I think I handled it quite well, he says. 
Until he went so completely off the rails in his late teens, Doherty was happy, stable and studious. He grew up in a military family, the middle child between two sisters, and the family moved around Britain and Europe frequently. He got excellent GCSEs and A-levels, but dropped out of university after a year, met Barat, formed the Libertines, and that was that. In her book, Jacqueline Doherty strenuously denies suggestions that her son had an unhappy childhood, although his father, also called Peter, was strict, and later disowned his son in despair at his drug-taking. I had a very happy childhood, Doherty agrees. Drug-taking was partly about self-annihilation, he says, but more so about adventure and romance. I'd love to set out to sea in a time before the world was mapped. I grew up in a very mapped world, so it was about going out into uncharted territory. Drugs always reduce those taking them to clichés. And for a long time, Doherty seemed destined to become another classic rock star casualty. Yet for all the messiness around him, he always came across as a gentle soul, which is partly why he accrued such adoration from fans, whereas others around him seemed just angry and scary. Yeah, I think that's true. I think Carl had a lot of anger, but now he has an enormous amount of happiness with his kids and he just loves the time he has with them, he says. Barat lives with his long-time girlfriend and their two sons in London. Barat and Doherty had one of the most fractious relationships in music, which included Doherty burgling Barat's flat and then going to jail. One of the Libertines' biggest hits, Can't Stand Me Now, was about their falling out, but the two of them sang it while sharing a mic so close they were almost kissing. The intensity of their bond was palpable, I say. Absolutely. You're making me quite emotional, he says, his eyes suddenly filling with tears. Both men went on to have other bands. Barat formed Dirty Pretty Things, but they didn't match the success of the Libertines. How are things between them now? Good? We still feel there's unfinished business and there are more songs to write, but he doesn't want to do it in England or in France, which he sees as my turf, so the plan is to go to Jamaica, try to make another Libertines record. Doherty has another Calvados and a beer, and we talk about how he's changed physically, although it's not nearly as dramatic as the papers suggest. And hey, who hasn't put on weight over the past 20 years? It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? He says, patting his tummy. But yeah, the cheese, man. The cheese in this area. The brie, the camembert. There's something special in the grass. You can taste it in the milk. It's different here. It's so creamy. I drink it by the pint and the butter and the bread and the saucisson. He looks almost high on the thought of it all. I tell him we'll have to hurry if I'm going to make my train. He makes an exaggerated show of looking for his wallet, and I reassure him the drinks are on me. Oh, good, because I seem to have forgotten my pocketbook, he grins. We head out of the cafe, at which point Zeus tears off again. Doherty runs after him, and I mentally say goodbye to making my train. Fifteen minutes later, he drags Zeus back, and we look for his car. It turns out Doherty had left the engine running for the past hour. On the drive back, we talk about US politics, about which he turns out to be very well informed. I got quite into CNN during lockdown. When you have something like 6 January 2021, when Trump supporters attack the Capitol, you don't want to be messing around. CNN is where you want to be, he says solemnly. He largely stays away from the internet. He doesn't have a laptop and gave up his phone at the same time he quit drugs so he couldn't contact any dealers. I ask about his relationship with Davidas, whom he's been with for five years, and how she coped when he was still using. It was hard because she doesn't do any drugs and hardly drinks. But I found I used much less when I was with her because of that. And now it's great. 
I'm a married man, and I take that very seriously, he smiles. Things with his parents are good too. They really love Cartier. And at my wedding, the Libertines performed and my dad did the singing. That was a really beautiful moment. Everything just came together. We make it back to his house just as Laura is about to give us both up for lost. And I give Doherty a hasty hug goodbye. Oh no, have another Calvados, he says cheerfully. Ah, why rush for a train? Hanging out with Doherty today has been like revisiting the silliness of youth without the sadness. When there were no rules, but also no plunges into the abyss. We hold up our glasses and he grins. Cheers. That was Pete Doherty on crack, camembert and life in France. It's easier to be clean here, even for a scoundrel like me by Hadley Freeman. Finally, most of us shy away from life's hardest decisions, but there are methods we can learn to help us in these situations. In this piece, Joanna Moorhead speaks to two psychology experts who explain how we can make big decisions more easily. Read by Esther Coles. Psychology professor Lawrence Allison is an expert in how to make decisions. But in the early days of his career, it was all theoretical. Then one day, he took a call from someone very senior who described a worrying trend. Police chiefs were showing themselves unable in critical situations to make crucial choices. He asked, is there anything you can do to help? There was. Alison, a straight-talking, no-nonsense person, started to translate what he knew from textbooks and turn it into practical advice. Academic work on decision-making had concentrated on studying how they're made in theoretical settings, he says. But I realised we needed to move it into real-time, lives-on-the-line situations, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, where chances were someone was being presented with a situation where almost every choice looked dire. I knew I had something to offer that would make a difference. Now, he and his colleague, Neil Shortland, with whom he runs training courses for military, law enforcement and political leaders around the world, have written a book that translates the wisdom they've honed still further, making it relatable to a wider audience. The people we work with face tumultuous decisions on a regular basis, Alison says. In normal life, perhaps 1% of the decisions we make are genuinely life-changing. It's things like whether to commit to your partner, would it be better to change career, is this the right time to have a baby? The problem is that many people are terrified of these decisions. They believe they're bad at making critical choices. You hear them saying things like, I just wish someone would tell me what I ought to do. In fact, the gem at the heart of the book is that there's almost always a decision that's uniquely right for you, so it's usually best to make your own decisions. It's a question of tapping into your personal values and concentrating not on the process but on the end goal. I'd say the biggest mistake people make when it comes to decision making is failing to focus on the outcome, says Alison. They fret about making the decision when what they ought to be doing is throwing things forward and asking themselves, what do I really want to achieve here? Shortland agrees. People fail to focus clearly on what matters to them. They see that an option is appealing in one sense, but they don't think about what they need to give up to get it. For Alison, who teaches at Liverpool University, and Shortland, who's based at the University of Massachusetts, acknowledging the place of regret is fundamental to effective decision-making. Fear of regretting a decision later is paralysing for some people, and that's part of why they believe the biggest danger around decisions isn't doing the wrong thing, it's doing nothing. In many ways, we're wired to want to retain the status quo, to play safe, says Alison. 
These big decisions are unusual events in our lives. We don't have much to compare them to, so we lack expertise. And the easy thing is to be risk-averse and stick with what we've got. He calls it decision inertia and says it's common in many knife-edge situations, mounting a rescue operation, for example, or choosing when to launch a military attack, where there is no perfect outcome, just bad or worse. That's the same with some ordinary life decisions too. And in those cases, what's needed is a realisation of what's least bad. But it's always going to be an unpalatable judgement to have to make. What then is the secret to being able to make even the trickiest of decisions? Alison and Shortland have come up with a formula with the guiding acronym STAR. S is for situational awareness. It's about working out what's happening, why it's happened and what you think is going to happen next. In their book, they tell the story of Jenny, who discovered her husband of 11 years, Rob, was having an affair with a work colleague. The discovery clearly gave Jenny a huge decision to make about whether to stay with Rob or leave him. But first, she had to work out what was going on, both in their marriage and in the other relationship. Leaving Rob seemed like the obvious way forward, but in the end, Jenny stayed. When she unpacked the situation, she could see what had gone wrong in her marriage, but more importantly, she thought it was possible to repair the damage. When you're up against it, says Shortland, your brain is like a glass that's already full of water. You need to let some of it out before you can think through what's going on. You need to find yourself some space, some time, before you can unravel what's happening. But time, the T of the acronym is highly significant here too, because before you make a decision, you need to calculate how much time there is available to make it in. And if there's no time frame and it's open-ended, should I look for a new job? Do I want to move to another country? You need to watch out that you don't go down the doing nothing route because you've got forever. You haven't really got forever, Alison and Shortland warn. Life is short. And sometimes, if you choose to hang on rather than make a choice, you're effectively making the choice anyway. The A in STAR is for adaptation. Good decision makers are open-minded and adventurous in their headspace and tend not to be daunted by exploring new possibilities. Take the example of someone who gets a call out of nowhere offering them a new job, says Shortland. The danger in this case is that you'll be flattered into taking it, thinking you've not had to hustle for this, it's landed on your lap, so why not take it? What you should do, though, is test it. Instead of rehearsing all the reasons why it makes sense to take it, test yourself with arguments about how it's not right. We're wired, he explains, to look for validation. Hello, social media. But if you reassure yourself that something is right and then it turns out to be wrong, you'll pay the price. Finally, R is for revision. Because making a decision once doesn't necessarily mean you can't revisit it. The STAR model is anchored around what people tend to struggle with around decision making, says Shortland. We want to share the pitfalls to describe the dangers of how your mind tends to want to go, so you can override it if that's in your interests. We're trying to look at decision-making as an organic process rather than an end in itself. Ours is a holistic approach and it hinges on knowing what matters most to you. Alison and Shortland agree that some personality types find it easier than others to make decisions. They make a lot of so-called maximizers who strive for perfection versus satisficers who will settle for something that's good enough. The problem for maximizers is that hanging on waiting for everything to line up might mean missing an opportunity and also real life is rarely, if ever, perfect. At the root of good decision-making is the knowledge that in plumping for one option, you have to give up on other possibilities. The cooler you can be about letting them go, the more streamlined your decision-making will become. So how good are Alison and Shortland at making their own decisions? 
Shortland says he was recently offered a new job and had to decide whether to go for it or not. It was a challenge because I had to reflect very deeply on what I really wanted, he says. And having written a whole book about it, it still took me five days to make my choice. Self-awareness and honesty are what it's all about and that takes time. Alison says he still has to chew over decisions and some are certainly more difficult than others. My stumbling block is sometimes reacting too quickly, not taking notice of my own advice to work out whether or not I need to act at this precise moment or if I can wait a while. Meanwhile, they are considering the use of artificial intelligence. AI can play chess, it can guide fighter planes, it can spot patterns and warn us about things, says Shortland. But can it tell us which decisions to take right now? Could AI handle the next pandemic? We're starting to look at the pros and cons. As with the police chiefs, the real world came calling. This is the hot topic right now and we're in the thick of it. That was... How to Make Big Decisions More Easily by Joanna Moorhead Read by Esther Coles That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Esther Coles and Jason Doan. And presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by George Cooper. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Max Sanderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.